but I get to talk on the fourth church today uh, called Thyatira. And uh, I have loved these letters so far. And it hit me this week when I was thinking about it that these were actual churches. So um, they weren't, they're not imaginary churches. And they actually got a letter from Jesus. Imagine if um, Pam came next week and said, I've got a letter for us all, and it's from Jesus. And that's exactly what this was like. And so um, Thyatira gets their, their letter from Jesus, and um, we'll take it through today. But because I'm a visual learner, I got a map for us today so we can have a look at, um, at where these... I'm ringing a little bit up here. Um, <clears throat> See, Pergamon, we looked at Pergamon last week, and Thyatira, just down from that, oh, thanks. Okay. Uh, Just down from that is Thyatira. And um, so you can see over here, we did Ephesus, and we've done Smyrna. They're closer to the coast. But you see, Thyatira was on one of the Greek trade routes, so into, um, into the Asian country there. And uh, Thyatira was known for its great trades. It was a trade town. It wasn't so much a metropolitan area. But people moved there because they were tradespeople. And uh, they were known for uh, their deep purple. They, had, um, they did this deep purple dye there that was very uh, well famous throughout the land. And they got that from because in Thyatira they had these tiny little snails that weren't really anywhere else and they would crush them and in the shell there was this deep purple and so that's where the um, purple came from in Thyatira. And uh, it also was a place, as I mentioned, of great trade but within this trade they had these things called trade guilds. And uh, if we think of trade guilds today, they're similar to like trade unions but way more exclusive. So... Uh, if you wanted to trade in this city of Thyatira, you needed to be part of a trade guild. The problem that was presented there to the church was that they were taught they weren't allowed to be part of these guilds. Uh, not just to be killjoys, but uh, when you were part of a trade guild, you had to be part of the religion that was part of that. So to be able to trade in this city, you needed to somewhere compromise uh, the commandment of you'll have no other gods but me, and you would uh, enter into these trade guilds, and in that you would um, participate in the pagan religions and the sacrifices and the festivals and things like that. And so this was one of the greatest oppositions to Christianity in the town, that uh, the Christians were tradespeople, but they couldn't trade because they couldn't be part of the guilds, and that will come into play later in the message. Um, a Roman guard was actually stationed at, Perg- at um, Thyatira, not because it was important, but because Pergamon above it was important. And so if there was any attack on Thyatira, the Roman guard would be able to sig- signal Pergamon and say there's attack coming. Uh, they didn't really care too much for the trade town, but they definitely cared for the metropolitan area of Pergamon. So that's a little bit of history of Thyatira. Um, thanks for that, Cam. Is that good to have a visual? I thought that was. All right, uh, we're going to read the word. And just before I do, can we pray? And um, then we'll start. Father, thank you so much for the word of God. Lord, Jesus, thank you for taking the time for writing these letters. 
to us. Lord, I pray that every ear that needs to be open would be open. I pray that every hardened heart or shell-covered heart would be broken open to the love of Jesus Christ this morning. I pray against anything that would try and attack the word, that would try and bring condemnation or offense or to be heard in the wrong way. We speak that this place is under the authority of Jesus Christ and he'll be lifted up because his word is spoken. In the precious name of Jesus we pray, amen. So in this, um, in this letter to Thyatira, it's actually the smallest church that gets a letter but it gets the biggest letter. Um, you'd think, oh, how lucky. Not, in, not until you read it, you think that they're lucky. Because there's some pretty harsh language that Jesus uses for this. But um, let's have a look together. In Revelations 2, 18 to 29, it's on the screens if you don't have your Bibles. But if you do, follow along. Write this to Thyatira, to the angel of the church. God's son, eyes pouring, fire blazed, standing on feet, furnished fire bronze, says this. And some open up for Jesus. I see everything you're doing for me. Impressive. The love and the faith, the service and persistence. Yes, very impressive. You get better at it every day. So far, so good. It turns here. But why do you let that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, mislead my dear servants into cross-denying and self-indulging religion? I gave her a chance to change her ways, but she has no intention of giving up a career in the God business. I'm about to lay her low, along with her partners, as they play their sex and religion games. The bastard offspring of the idol whoring I'll kill. Then every church will know that appearances don't impress me. I x-ray every motive and make sure you get what's coming. The rest of you Thyatarians who have done nothing, who have nothing to do with this outrage, who scorn this playing around with the devil that gets paraded as profundity, be assured I'll make life, I will not make life any harder for you than it already is. Hold on to the truth that you have until I get there. And here's the reward. I have for every conqueror, everyone who keeps at it, refusing to give up. You'll rule the nations. Your shepherd king rule as firm as an iron staff, their resistance fragile as clay pots. This was the gift my father gave me, and I'll pass it on to you, and with it, the morning star. Are your ears awake? Listen. Listen to the wind words, the spirit blowing through the churches. Thanks for the letter, Jesus. Harsh, very harsh in some things. Some of that language Jesus used, I wouldn't even use in my normal, normal speech. But anyway, things to note about this letter. You'll notice as we look through the seven letters that Jesus will um, identify himself as something before he starts the letter. So to each church, he'll identify himself in a way that's in context to the letter. So here he says, to the church at Thyatira, I am the son of God. It's interesting to note that this is the only time in Revelations that he says, I'm the son of God. So he's starting the letter from a platform and going, hey, I want to remind you of something that I'm the son of God. I'm the way, I'm the truth. I'm the one who sets the standards. I'm the son of God. 
And then he goes on to describe himself. He says, I have eyes of fire and feet of bronze. In each letter, he'll describe himself differently in context to what's the message that being brought to the church. This one, he says, my eyes are of fire. I see through the outward appearance. I see straight through all the outward appearance of what you're doing. I see straight to the heart. Bronzed feet, bronze was the, was the strongest metal they had at this time. He was standing firm. He would not be shaken on this. So his opener was, I'm the son of God. I see you for who you really are. And I'm not moving on this. And this eyes of fire and bronze feet would conjure up for the church there at Thyatira um, a vision that they would know that happened in Daniel 10.6 where Daniel saw a man and his body was like a jeweled body, like a precious gem and his face flashed like lightning and his eyes flamed like torches. His arms and feet shone like polished bronze and his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. Jesus wasn't just making up an image of going, I think I'll have fire eyes today and bronze shoes. He was reaffirming a prophecy that happened way long ago in the book of Daniel. Daniel said, I saw him coming and now Jesus says, here I am. I've come and I've got something to say. Jesus commends them on their, and on their work and what an incredible thing that would be to hear how I see your works, I see your patience, I see your love. Your service, it gets better every day. They would have thought, this is going all right. This is good. And then he quickly turns to, but you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now there's two Jezebels in the Bible. There's one in the Old Testament and where we see her first, who's a, her literal name is Jezebel. And she was a woman who married King Ahab of Israel. And then there's this Jezebel in the New Testament whose name is not Jezebel, but rather Jesus, the one who sees things for what they are, is calling her for the spirit that is on her life. So there's two Jezebels, but one spirit. So we don't actually know the name of this prophetess in this letter, but Jesus is calling her by the spirit that is on her. So he says, you tolerate the spirit of Jezebel. Now, to understand uh, what Jesus is, is saying by that, because he doesn't give us a lot of context, he just says, you tolerate this woman Jezebel, and then he kind of moves on and says, the cross-denying, the self-indulging, sex and religion games, but we don't see a lot of her character. So this morning, we're going to um, head back into the Old Testament, and I've talked about it before, the, the law of first mention, where, it, uh, where something is first mentioned is the Bible is is the benchmark or it sets up the platform for what the reference point will be in the rest of the Bible. And so we're going to go back into 1 Kings this morning and have a look where Jezebel first entered. And it's, it's an epic story of great proportion. And so I, I, I sent Kem the email of all the scriptures. And um, no, nah, not that one. No, there's no scriptures for this one because it goes for about three pages. And he said, oh, you didn't have many scriptures last night. I said, oh, no, I've got too many. I've got to paraphrase. So I'm going to paraphrase. But if you want to turn to 1 Kings 16, or if you're taking notes, write that down for reference later. 
because uh, we see in, in 1 Kings 16 and Revelations 2, 18 to 29, we see a mirrored story. There's a woman named Jezebel and there's uh, a chance to repent and then there's a refusal to repent and then there's just demise for Jezebel. So um, the story in 1 Kings... <clears throat> When we find Israel, when we find the children of Israel, they are split into two kingdoms. They're split into the southern and the northern kingdom at this time where we read. Uh, they once were an incredible nation, a strong nation under God who, um, according to the promise that was promised to Abraham, they were a great nation. And somewhere along the line, um, King Solomon let uh, compromise and, and other gods come into the kingdom and he made some terrible political choices. And uh, the kingdom split and, one were, and, and 11 tribes went one way and one tribe, the tribe of Judah, went the other way. And so the king um, has taken, King Ahab is becoming king over the 11 tribes of Israel. So they're split. We got that? Split kingdom. King Ahab. The way that God introduces King Ahab in the scripture is he is the king that most angered the Lord. We've got some great openers in these pieces of scripture. The king that most angered the Lord. And he had no regard for the statutes or the commandments that that God had given. And um, he wanted to make an alliance with a foreign country, the Phoenicians. And... Uh, so he, he made an alliance, and part of that alliance was that he would marry the Phoenician king's daughter, enter Jezebel. So Jezebel enters the story, and, he, and she marries King Ahab. And uh, as she, she's a lady who was a, prophet, who was a princess, but then became a queen, but she was, an, she was a fiercely loyal Baal worshipper. She was fiercely loyal. Her father was a king, but he was also a, a prophet of Baal. And so she was brought up in a household that was committed to the, the God of Baal. And so in she came to Israel, and King Ahab should never have married her. He should never have made an alliance with a foreign country. And, and she comes in and she speaks to him and seduces her, her new husband and says, I would like a temple for Baal. He's like, it's yours. Let's build a temple for Baal in, in Israel. And she said, well, I would also like an altar. And he says, it's yours and builds an altar for Baal. And then she brings in 450 prophets of Baal. And the... Uh, the goddess that goes along with Baal, because there's a god and a goddess, the goddess that goes along with Baal is Ashoreth. And so not only did she bring 450 prophets of Baal, she brought 400 prophets of Ashoreth as well. And along with that, she sent out word to kill all the prophets of Yahweh. The moment she got in, she brought in a, a, a foreign god, a pagan religion, and she killed out the prophets of Yahweh. Only a only hundred remained because a faithful servant of the Lord hid 50 in one cave and hid 50 in another. And the rest, either they died or they turned over to Baal worship. So hundreds 
of, of Yahweh's prophets were killed that day. And then we see Elijah enter. He sees this going on that Jezebel's married Ahab and he comes up to the king. He goes, I have a word of the Lord for you. And he says that you have done evil in my sight and there will be no rain until God says there will again. And straight after he gives that prophecy, he hears the word, go, the word of the Lord say, run. So Elijah runs. Interesting to note here that um, Baal was known as a god of the land. And so with that, People who worshipped him believed that he controlled the rain, that he controlled the weather, the crops, and the cattle. And so the moment that this Baal God came into rain in, the, in, in God's kingdom, God says, no more rain. There's going to be a drought. And there was. And so Elijah ran and he hid and he didn't stop to ask and say, hey God, what? Where am I running to? What if I don't have food there? What if I don't have water there? God says, just run. I know I told you to say that word, but now it's time to run. And he runs and God tells him, just keep running, just keep running. And when you get to the place, you'll know when. And, and don't worry about what you're going to eat and, or what you're going to drink because I'll get the ravens to bring you a morning and nighttime meal. And even in this drought, I'll make the stream to flow by you so you have water to drink. And so for about three years, um, we don't hear of Elijah too much. We hear some miracles that he does. But about three and a half years of drought, terrible drought, it says in the land. God speaks to Elijah again and he says, now go and call out that woman Jezebel. Go and call her out. And so he does. He walks back into that town. And he says, hey, Jezebel, the Lord has sent me. And today I'm going to prove whose God is God. And so he sets up this big challenge, an incredible challenge, where he says, all right, you guys. So there was 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Ashoreth, 850 prophets of false gods. He goes, you guys, you build an altar and make a sacrifice. And me, the lone God guy, I'll build an altar and I'll make a sacrifice. And then we'll challenge each other. You, you call down fire on yours from your God and I'll wait and, I'll, and then I'll call down fire from mine, from my God. And whatever sacrifice burns up, that's whose God is the real God. And all the children of Israel hear this uh, challenge and they gather. There's probably not much going on in the day and so a challenge sounds good. So they all gather and Elijah gets this holy reverence and he turns to them and just goes, whose God is God? If Yahweh is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. Who's God? And they all kind of just stood around not knowing what to say. They had nothing to say. This woman, Jezebel, had brought such confusion and such dilution of truth that they didn't even know who was God. And so this challenge goes on and the prophets of Baal do their thing. They um, dance and they shout and they pray. And um, we see the first heckler of the Bible, Elijah, starts mocking them because nothing's happening. And you can read this, it's hilarious. In the Bible, he goes, shout louder. Maybe, maybe your God's on vacation. 
And so they start shouting louder and dancing louder. And then he heckles again. Maybe he's on the toilet. And like heckling, heckling, nonstop. He's like, I think he's on vacation. You've got to call him back or wake him up. And he's heckling away. And they just shout all the louder. And then they start cutting themselves. Do we see that in our generation today? Or do we just think that's a weird thing of depression? Make no mistake, the spirit of Jezebel is still out to kill, steal and destroy. They start cutting themselves to their God and nothing happens. And after hours of this, they call it quits. And Elijah goes, all right, in the middle of the drought, he says, find three buckets of water. Come and pour it over my my sacrifice here. I don't want anyone to think that it was just the drought and the hot sun that burnt their cell. And he built a trench around his sacrifice. He said, bring another three buckets, drench this thing and bring another three buckets. And they drenched it until the whole, the whole moat around this sacrifice was full. And then Elijah stood there and said, God, show them that you're real and give them a chance for repentance. And fire came from heaven. Fire burnt up the the whole altar. And in that moment, all the children of Israel just went, Yahweh's God, Yahweh is the God. And they got this holy anger and completely slaughtered 850 of the false prophets. And so at that point, you can only imagine what the scene would have been like. God calls Elijah up to the mountain. He says, now pray for rain. I'll show them who controls the rain. I'll show them who's the God of the land. And rain comes for the first time in three and a half years. And so Elijah's feeling pretty chuffed about himself and he's sitting outside the city thinking, what a good day. It's a good prophet day, I reckon. And then he sees a messenger coming and it's a messenger from Jezebel. And, it said, and, and they said, Jezebel says this to you. I'm going to kill you. And for a moment, Elijah believes it. He has just slaughtered 850 men. But this woman doesn't even come herself, sends a messenger. I'm going to kill you. And fear grips him. He believes the lie that's been sent from Jezebel and he runs. Not this time because God told him, but because he forgot who he was in God. And he ran and he ran and he ran and he ran. He ran into the wilderness and it says he collapsed, exhausted and fell asleep. He woke up. He's like, God, just let me die. She's going to kill me anyway. Just, I'm done with this. Just let me die. And he falls asleep again and he wakes up again. An angel wakes him and says, Here, eat and drink. He eats and drinks and falls asleep. And again, the angel wakes him again and says, eat and drink. You need some sustenance. And he does that. And then he runs another 40 days and 40 nights into the wilderness and collapses in a cave. Now, that's not where our story ends with Elijah. It's where I want to pause it this morning. Because what could God, what could Jesus possibly be saying 
to the church in Thyatira by calling them out for tolerating a Jezebel spirit. What was it? What were the characteristics that they were tolerating? We see from the story that there is some um, key things that we find in both of these pictures. And uh, if you're taking notes this morning, I have five points, not five points, but five characteristics to look out for to see whether you are being attacked by the Jezebel spirit. First thing is, the Jezebel spirit will always try and silence the prophetic. The moment she got into the, the city of Israel, the prophets were killed off. The spirit of Jezebel hates the prophetic word being spoken. And in the New Testament, Jezebel, she came in and said, I'm a prophetess of God. How does that cut it off? Because in that time... Uh, there was a, a rank of leaders. It was apostle, prophet, pastor. So because there were no apostles in this church at Thyatira, she came in and said, I'm a prophetess, so I'm above the pastors. I'm going to silence the voice and the prophetic word of God. And why does this spirit so fiercely want to silence the prophetic? Because things are created when God speaks. Take the voice and you take the creation. Tries to silence the prophetic. The, th- the second thing that we see that the Jezebel spirit does is promotes compromise. Promotes compromise. The Jezebel spirit promotes compromise and teaching of what people want to hear. You know what the New Testament Jezebel uh, was teaching these people? Why Jesus was so angry about it? She was teaching them it's okay to be a Christian and now you can be part of the guilds. She was teaching them exactly what they wanted to hear. Oh, great, now we can make a living. Now we don't have to worry about God providing for us. We'll, we'll get there. We'll, we'll participate in, in the adultery and in their fornication and we'll eat the meat of the idols that's being offered. That's great. You're a prophetess. That must be the truth. How great. But she promotes compromise. And the Old Testament, Jezebel also taught this. She taught you can worship Yahweh and you can worship Baal. It's okay. The spirit of Jezebel always promotes compromise. The spirit of Jezebel today still says these same little arguments. That it's okay to serve two things, but they sound a bit different. They don't say you can join a guild and serve Baal. Not today. It says things like, you know what? You just got to follow your heart. You just do, feel, do what feels right for you. And even when you say that, some people in here would be thinking, well, I, th- I do have to follow my heart. Do you know the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all else? That it's not our heart we follow, but the word of God that we plant in our heart? The spirit of Jezebel will still be gnawing away and going, it's okay. The spirit of Jezebel, thirdly, despises godly authority. There's a part in that story of Jezebel and Ahab that I didn't get around to paraphrasing, um, where Ahab wants a piece of this land that's next to a temple he built. He wants this vineyard 
But he knows that he can't have it because under Jewish law, it was forbidden that men would be able to sell um, the heritage that their father left them. And so the man that Ahab approached said, I'll buy your vineyard. He said, no, 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 I, I can't sell that to you. Under God's law, I can't do that. And he goes home and he sulks. And Jezebel comes in and says, what are you sulking about? He goes, oh, I can't buy the land, the vineyard that I want. She goes, hang on. Aren't you king of Israel? Where she came from, the king was where it ended. In Israel, Yahweh was where it ended. But she said to him, no, 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 we'll get that vineyard. The spirit of Jezebel despises godly authority. Nothing can be put over them. Nothing can be told over the spirit of Jezebel. In other words, today, not like, are you the king of Israel? But you don't have to answer to anyone. You don't have to listen to godly authority. Who are they anyway? They're just humans. But God, all throughout the Bible, deliberately placed godly authority in places where they would be able to shepherd and correct when need correcting. The spirit of Jezebel, when you're under attack, you'll, you'll have this despise for authority and people telling you how to live godly. Fourthly, it is cross-denying. It denies the power of the cross in the New Testament. But... Um, by encouraging the Thyatarian church to become part of the guild, it is completely denying the power of the cross to provide for them. It's saying, God, I don't think you understand my circumstances here. I'm a tradesperson. I need to be in the trade guild to work. I don't trust that you'll provide for me any other way. In vast contrast to Elijah when he's told to run, he doesn't even ask, how will you provide for me? God says, I'll, I'll send the ravens with morning and night meal and I'll send a stream. But Jezebel in this letter was encouraging them, you know what, the power of the cross is not enough. You've got to get out there and make your own way. I wonder today if, if there is anywhere in our lives where, where we stand on faith for God to move or else it won't happen or do we have everything organized to a T? Or do we have everything planned out? Is there anywhere in your finances where God, where God you better come through? Or do we just work and work and work? at the risk of not having a Sabbath or do we keep getting in debt because we don't trust that God's going to provide? Or do we plan our time so well that there is no time for prayer and reading? It's cross-denying. I can do this all by myself. I need you for salvation, but everything else, I've got this. Lastly, we see that it's self-indulging. The Jezebel spirit promotes self Indulging religion. By allowing eating of the idol food and engaging in sexual immorality, adultery and pagan ceremonies, all of this felt good to the flesh. This is what they wanted to hear. Finally, someone could tell them that do whatever you want. But self-indulgent. Self-indulgent religion, I think, is the most prevalent attack on the Western church today. I'll do it if it feels good. I'll do it when it suits me. 
I don't really like that worship music, so I don't really participate. I find reading the Bible really boring, so I don't really read. I don't like praying. I just get bored and fall asleep. I'll serve when, I, when I'm really passionate about it and when it suits my giftings, but not when it hurts. Self-indulgent religion is prevalent through the Western church. If it looks good, if it feels good, if it adds to my lifestyle, if it looks good on my Instagram page, if it looks good and if it suits me, I'll turn up then. And if everything else isn't scheduled in, then I'll turn up. But this, was, this is an attack from the spirit of Jezebel. It is putting the church to sleep in a state of sleepiness that just goes, I don't know what's going on in the spirit realm, but I feel pretty good. And we see these traits in both pieces of scripture. I'll try and wrap this up. We see these traits in both pieces of scripture in 1 Kings 16, right through to 2 Kings 3. And we see it in in Revelations 2. But the thing that Jesus was most concerned about in that letter is that his church was tolerating it. I love what Graham said the other week, how he said, if you've got a problem with the church, take the finger and point it right here. Because I'm the church. You're the church. And I wonder if the church, you, me, whether we're tolerating any of these behaviors in our lives today. Is us, are we the church under attack from the spirit of Jezebel and our eyes are so shut tight that we can't even see. As I said these, I wonder if something pricked in your spirit or in your heart and thought, oh dear, that's me. (sighs) I've got one honest soul over here. (laughs) That's me. How did I get here? How did I let that attack come into my life? I didn't even see it. How did I get here? And God asks a similar question to Elijah when he's under attack from Jezebel and we'll return to hear the end of this story now. And he's in the cave. Now the scripture. And, he, and God comes to Elijah and says, So Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? This isn't where I told you to be. You're meant to be back leading the revival. Did you believe a lie and you've ended up in the wilderness? What are you doing here? And just like the Thyatarians could have said, Elijah says, I've been working my heart out for you. The God of the angel armies. And Elijah said, the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, destroyed the places of worship and murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And God says, God, then he was told, go and stand on the mountain at attention before God and God will pass by. A hurricane wind ripped through the mountains and shattered the rocks before God. But God wasn't found in the hurricane. And after the hurricane, an earthquake. But God wasn't found in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire. But God wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, the gentle whisper. The gentle, quiet whisper. And Elijah heard the quiet voice. 
God comes to Elijah and goes, what are you doing here? I wonder today if God is saying to any of us on our Christian walk, what are you doing here? What, what door in your spirit world did you leave over? What bitterness did you leave open like a, a, a doorway for the spirit, an attack to come in? What unforgiveness? What gossip? What hatred? What burden did you not lay down? What doorway did you leave open that the spirit of Jezebel could attack you without even knowing? How'd you get here? But God in his grace, you know, mountains are symbolic of meeting with God in the Bible. He says, come to the mountain. Come to the mountain. And he wasn't in the hurricane and the earthquake and the fire. Can I tell you today, church, your relationship with God isn't found in the multitudes of people in the great displays of service in the ground-breaking worship. It's found in that still, small voice between you and God, in the whisper. And we see the same thing from Jesus right at the end of the letter. The same as he said to Elijah, he can hear him in the still, small voice. Jesus says, listen, listen. Listen to the wind words. God is calling us to a place where we would silence the appearances that shout so loudly of, look how well I'm doing as a Christian and just come to the place where he speaks and we listen. Listen. You don't have to listen to a shout. You can't ignore it. You need to listen to the voice of God. And today I pray that our spirits would be so awake that our eyes and our ears would be alert that there is a spirit of Jezebel, not just in the Bible, but in the earth today, deliberately trying to attack the church, to take it out of the place where it was meant to be leading a revival and hiding in a cave, scared, not sure what the truth is. Can I encourage you, church, tune your ear, to listen to the win words that Jesus speaks to the church. Amen.